Well, good morning. Good morning to each and every one of you here in the room. Good morning to those of you online. Congratulations for those of you in the room. You made it to church on a holiday weekend, and that's not easily done. It's so easy to get into the post-Thanksgiving. You get that Friday, then you got Saturday, and it's like, oh, maybe I'll just stay home. So good for you for being here today. And as we begin, I just want to ask you, how many of you remember the magic eye images? You know what I'm talking about? Raise your hand if you know what I'm talking about. How many of you could see them? Uh, a few more hands go down, right? I can see some heads shaking. Uh, these were known as auto-stereograms. That was something I learned this week when I looked them up and, and learned a little bit about the history of these. They were really, really big in the early 90s. And so that was right when I was in elementary school. And uh, I don't know about you, but I didn't see them. I didn't see him for a long time. In fact, we've got one here for those of you that would like to be distracted for the next few moments, trying to see it. If you can see him usually, then you've probably already started to make it out. If you don't usually see him, you're like, give me a hint. Well, it says Advent. It's a Christmas tree in front of a fireplace. The Christmas tree is on the left side of the image. You kind of see some people. Okay, so we'll probably have to get that off the screen eventually so that you can come back. But like I said, you know, I couldn't see him for the longest time. And I, I had varying degrees of frustration, you know. I would be in a group and it seemed like everybody else could see it. Except for me. And some would patiently explain and coach, you know, and you will look through the image, right? You just look through the image. Try to focus on something beyond the image and then slide the image in front and don't focus your eyes. And, and they would describe in detail what was in the image. Others just ignored me. Too bad. Sorry. And then there were some that were somewhat indignant. Like, it's right there. How can you not see it, right? And maybe you've had those experiences as well. But then one day, something clicked. And suddenly I could see it. And the image that I was trying to see that day, I can still remember it. It was like this sphere, and it was supposed to be the world. And I never could pick out the countries, but I could see that sphere coming out in 3D. And I was so excited. It, it finally worked. It fi- I could finally see it. And now it still takes me a while sometimes. And I had to sit in a semi-public space and look at this one over and over and move my head back and forth and move my computer screen back and forth because I wanted to make sure that it worked on a computer screen. I was like, I don't want to be the guy that puts it up on a screen and then somebody tells me afterwards it doesn't work on digital. You've got to be on a piece of paper. But it works and I could see it and there is a fireplace and a Christmas tree there. Some of you have found it and some of you have not. Well, we're in a new Advent series and the series is titled, Do You See What I See? Do you see what I see when you look at this image? Because as we go through Advent this year, we're going to take the Christmas story from a variety of different perspectives. Some may be different than you're used to hearing about in an Advent message series. We're going to start farther away and then get closer and closer to that Christ child as time advances. But I wonder, has it ever occurred to you that Christmas is kind of like one of those magic eye images for some people. The whole world is bombarded with Christmas right now, but there are some people who just don't see it. Try as they might, they don't see what we see. Is that you? 
Did you come here accepting an invitation, just trying to be polite, and, and you don't see what the people that are so excited for you to come to their church see? Or maybe you're joining online because somebody shared this message with you, or somebody's given you this message to listen to on a podcast, and you're like, I just don't see what the big deal about Christmas really is. Or maybe it's somebody you know. Maybe there's somebody you know that you've tried to share it before and they just don't seem to get it. Kind of like the magic eye images. Well, today we're going to start, as I said, from farther away. And we're going to focus on the partially informed public. The partially informed public. Have you ever had an experience with the partially informed public? Right? Where they don't have the whole story, but they're willing to chime in, tell you what they think you should do, or to cast judgment to tell you what they think about a situation in which they are only partially informed. I think if we're honest, I know I can say I've been a part of the partially informed public in other people's lives before. And one of the things that I have tried to learn to do, and sometimes I get this right and sometimes I do not, is to ask more questions and to seek Help me understand the rest of the story. Because what I see doesn't quite make sense, doesn't quite line up. And when we'll ask more questions, sometimes we can go from being partially informed to more informed. But today we're talking about the partially informed public, and we're going to use uh, the Christmas story found in Matthew Matthew 1, verses 18 through 25, as a launch pad while we think about the partially informed public, because they actually show up in the Christmas story. And maybe you already know where I'm going with that. But I'm going to read this passage, Matthew 1, 18 through 25, all the way through, and then we'll focus on a few verses in particular. And uh, if you need a Bible, there are some in the room here. You can reach into a seat in front of you and pick up a Bible, turn to page 1497. Otherwise, if you're joining us online, it'll be on the screen. Uh, But I always encourage you to have a Bible open on your lap, and you can even write in those things and, and jot something down that you want to remember in the future when you read that as well. So, Matthew 1, 18 through 25, we read these words. This is how... The birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord commanded and took Mary home as his wife. But he had no union with her until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. So this story is the first real part of the narrative that we have in Matthew's gospel. He begins chapter 1 with a lengthy genealogy, which it's easy to be tempted to skip over that. Uh, Last year we shared this beautiful beautifully set to music version of that, and and I think of it every time I read Matthew 1 now. But, But this comes right after the genealogy of Christ, and right at the beginning there in verse 18, we're introduced to Jesus, to Mary, and to Joseph. And all three of them were mentioned back in verse 16 in that genealogy. Incidentally, Joseph is the 41st man whose name was listed. Mary is the fourth woman. 
who is named there. And we learn something important in verse 18, that Mary and Joseph are engaged and pregnant. And it's not Joseph's child. And that would have been bad enough, but it just doesn't look good. It doesn't look good at all for either one of them. You see, and we have to go back 2,000 years into an honor-shame culture where family honor was the main driver culturally, especially in a small village like Nazareth. This is not like this happening today. 2,000 years ago, families were disgraced. Mary's name and reputation are completely ruined. And her life is in danger because the Mosaic Law talks about stoning in these situations. Pre-Christ, when a woman's pregnant, there's only one possible explanation. And Joseph is in perhaps the unenviable position of deciding Mary's fate. Because he's either going to cleanse his reputation and his name by casting the first stone in her situation, or he ruins his reputation as well. Because unless he outwardly denies and casts all the blame on her, then half the blame from this partially informed public will rest on him. And so as we continue in verse 19... We get introduced to this partially informed public because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace. He had in mind to divorce her quietly. This is before the angelic announcement. We learn two things about him. We learn that he's a righteous man. And that that indication tells us that he didn't do anything improper. He's a righteous man. This isn't his child. He hasn't done anything improper. And it's well within his legal right to publicly disgrace Mary. So that tells us that his desire to to choose to divorce her quietly gives us another insight into Joseph, that there's a second level of righteousness, that it's not just legalistic righteousness, but that he doesn't want harm to come to Mary. And that's pretty big of him, all things considered. He desires this when he's still partially informed as well. He desires to show kindness, to show a second level of righteousness. And that's when the angel comes. In verse 20, we read that after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. After he is leaning in the direction of just divorcing her quietly and moving on and hoping that at some point his reputation can be restored. Then he gets this angelic visitor. Then he gets some new information. He learns about a miracle that has taken place. And you know the rest of the story. Once he's fully informed, he does the unthinkable. He takes Mary home as his wife. He shares the burden of the partially informed public with her. And he knows what it's going to cost him. He knows what it's going to cost them with the partially informed public. But he also knows something they don't know. Something they can't know. Something they perhaps won't know. He knows that a miracle has taken place. But this was not a miracle 
to the partially informed public. It was a scandal. It was a scandal to them. And it's interesting to me that a few chapters later in our Bible, we have Jesus teaching about the partially informed public. If you'll turn a few pages over to Matthew chapter 13, after Jesus grew up and and began his public ministry, he went around and he taught, and he taught often in parables. And one of his most famous parables, one of my favorite parables, is the parable of the sower and the seed. We're not going to look at the parable today. We're actually going to focus more attention on Jesus's answering of a question about this parable. That after he taught the parable of the sower of the seed in Matthew 13, you can read about it in verses 3 through 9, he spends some time with his disciples and they ask him, why are you always teaching in parables? Why don't you just come right out and say what it is you want to say? And he answers in this way in verse 13 of Matthew chapter 13. He says, this is why I speak to them in parables. Though seeing, they do not see, and though hearing, they do not hear or understand. And I'm sure they were like, oh, that clears it all up. Now I know why. No, that that doesn't answer at all, but it, it does in a way. And he's quoting from prophecy. And those that had been good little boys and girls in their Sunday school classes knew what he was getting at. And it's almost like he's saying, you know, it's kind of like a magic eye image. They're not going to be around for 1,990 years, but someday there'll be these things that some people can see and some people can't. And just like the magic eye images, some people can stare at them forever and never see the 3D image emerge. And Jesus is saying it's kind of like that. Some people don't see what we see. Like those when Jesus hadn't even been born yet, those who were part of the partially informed public, they didn't see a miracle, they saw a mess. They saw a scandal, not something sacred. And so Jesus is identifying a truth that we do well to remember that some don't see, some can't see, some won't see what we see. Some are content not to see. They're indifferent. They shrug their shoulders. Oh yeah, I don't see it. And they move on and they're not too concerned about it. They're just perfectly content to move on and not see what we see at Christmas, to not see what we see when we look at Jesus, to not feel what we feel when we sing the songs that we sang this morning in worship. I don't know what it is, but that fourth song, every time the, the piano just starts playing those first few chords, something wells up inside of me. I feel something. And there are people in this world that don't feel what we feel. They don't see what we see. They don't know what we know. And they're perfectly content not to. Others are confused. They've misunderstood a key point and they've made an assumption based on that. And they don't have all the information. They're still partially informed, but they think they're informed enough to make a decision and they've rejected it because the church only wants my money or because those people only do this or do that or they just want this or they just want that or they're only interested in this or in that. And they're partially informed and they're confused on some really, really important information. There are some who are confused, who misunderstand something important. And then there are those who are committed to not seeing. They've got a personal stake in not seeing. It's going to cost them too much. And so no matter what, they don't want to see. And I believe that's who Jesus is talking about as he continues. Because in verse 14 and 15, he says, In them, in those who are seeing but do not see, and those who are hearing but do not hear or understand, in them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah. You will be ever hearing but never understanding. You will be ever seeing, but never perceiving. 
For this people's heart has become callous. They hardly hear with their ears. They have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn, and I would heal them. So he quotes Isaiah chapter 6 here, and he quotes talking about those who refuse to see. He's talking about the original audience that Isaiah had when he spoke these words. And that was the nation of Israel, the nation of Israel, the people of God, God's chosen people who had every opportunity, every reason, all the evidence needed to believe that God is who he said he is, to worship him in spirit and in truth, and they had rejected. They had chosen not to. They had remained a stiff-necked people, they're called, unwilling to humble themselves, unwilling to bow. They had every reason and opportunity, all the revelation necessary to believe. They had been led out of Egypt. They had heard all the stories. Even that first generation had failed to really believe. They'd been led through the Red Sea on dry ground. They had been led by a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. They had received water from the rock. They had been fed by manna and quail from heaven. All these reasons to believe God had revealed himself to them through the prophets. And yet they had rejected. And so that's who Isaiah is talking to. And he identifies the real issue there in verse 15. The real issue is a calloused heart. Closed eyes. They're not even listening. There was something that stood out to me this most recent time that I read through the Gospel of John and our banding together reading plan. We just finished that. And it tells us that, that there's a point in time, maybe it's in the Acts actually, I'm sorry, I got ahead of myself. It's in Acts because we're reading Acts 2. And when there's Stephen is sharing, he's trying to help them see that Jesus is the Messiah. Scripture tells us that they put their hands over their ears and they scream at the top of their lungs so that they can't hear what he's trying to tell them. That's the image that I see here that Jesus is saying. And you've got to imagine how heartbreaking this is to Jesus himself, God himself. That there are those who just refuse to hear because of a calloused heart, because of closed eyes. Because they're not listening at all. But then he takes a really sharp turn in verse 16 and he re-engages those that he's speaking to. And he says, but, but, he's changing subjects. He's wiping out what he's said before and he's establishing something new. He says, but your eyes are blessed. Blessed are your eyes because they see and because in your ears because they hear. For I tell you the truth, many prophets and righteous men long to see what you see, but did not see it. And to hear what you hear, but did not hear it. They long to see the Messiah in front of them in flesh and blood, but they never did. They long to hear the words of life that are spoken by the Messiah in flesh and blood, but they never heard it. And so he's saying, blessed are you, you see it, you get it. And I would say to those of you who are in Christ, blessed are you. Blessed are your eyes because they see what they see. Blessed are we. I love this image that there were prophets and righteous men for thousands of years that longed to see what we see at Christmas. The good news of God coming to us, Christ being born to deliver the world from sin and death. They longed to see what we see at Christmas when they never saw it. It hadn't happened yet. And so... Last week, if you were here, leading into Thanksgiving, we preached a message on Psalm 103 and gave 12 
reasons to praise God. I challenge you to give me a few more. I got some emails. Several people commented, you know, that justice is mentioned there. You see God's infinite nature mentioned there. Well, here, that's two more. Here's, here's a 15th one. Praise God for Christmas. Praise God for everything that Christmas represents. Praise God that he came, God with us, that he came to us. Praise God for Christmas. Praise God that he lived a perfect, sinless life, that he revealed the kingdom of heaven, that he taught about what the kingdom of heaven was like, that he set an example for us to follow, that he died and conquered sin and death because he rose again from death. Praise God for Christmas. What a tragedy that Christmas has become loaded down with all this other stuff so that some people are like, oh, Christmas. I just don't have the time for Christmas. I just don't have the energy for Christmas. And yet it's the greatest, greatest thing that's ever happened. Happened at Christmas. God with us, coming to us. And so this Christmas, we have to remember our bottom line today. Our bottom line today is that those who don't know what we know don't see what we see. And we have to remember that. We have to remember as we go around in this world out there, as things get busier and busier and busier and people's tempers get shorter and shorter and shorter, that there are those who just don't see what we see because they don't know what we know. Joseph is our example. He saw in faith. He believed. He chose to believe. He chose to do the unthinkable, to take Mary home as his wife. He chose to trust and obey what the angel said. And so for us, we see in faith. For those of us who are in Christ, we see in faith. We choose to believe. And we choose to trust. And to obey. And so because there are those who don't know what we don't know and don't see what we don't see, we have to do what we can to help them to know what we know, to help them to see what we see. This is where we enter the Christmas story. We have to tell the partially informed public what we know in the hopes that they'll see what we see. We have to tell them our story. You know, that's the one thing that nobody can really argue with. They can argue about Scripture. They can argue about whether or not it's inspired or whether or not it's this or that. But when you tell them your story, when you tell them your testimony, they can't argue with that. That's your story. It's your testimony. And if you don't tell it, it doesn't get told. And sometimes we think our testimony has to be a 30 or 40 minute long monologue. But it doesn't have to be. It can be, absolutely. But it can be as simple as I was this way and then I encountered Jesus and then I was this way. And you present the gospel to them. You help them understand that you didn't always see what you see. You didn't always know what you know. But then something happened. An event took place. Christ intersected your life. You turned and you were healed. Just like the language that Jesus quotes from Isaiah. And so we tell people, And we share our lives with them, and we love them, and we invite them to come to church, and we are patient with them, and we serve them in any way that we can, and we pray for them. We pray for those who don't see what we see, who perhaps can't see what we see because they're blinded for some reason, or they just won't see what we see. We pray for them, and we love them, and we serve them because Jesus died. For the partially informed public, Jesus died for me when I was in the partially informed public. He died for you when you were in the partially informed public. You know, Jesus died for some people who were ready to stone his mother. 
Think about that. He loves the partially informed public. He loves those who don't see what we see yet. And yet is such an important word. Because there was a time when I didn't see what I now see, when I didn't know what I now know. So don't give up on the partially informed public. Don't get cold. Don't stop. Don't lose hope. There's a really powerful little passage of Scripture that I don't have time necessarily to dive deep into, but it's in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. It's verses 9, 10, and 11. And verses 9 and 10 are just this really long list of sins, like R-rated sins, you know, really bad ones. And then he says in verse 11, but such were some of you. And I love that. I love that. Such were some of you. Such was I at one point. But I was cleansed. I was sanctified. I was justified. And we, never, we must never forget that there was a time when we didn't know what we know. There was a time when we didn't see what we see. So that will help us to be patient. That will help us to not give up on those who don't yet see what we see, who don't yet know what we know. And so I want to challenge you, I want to encourage you to focus on one person this year, one person who doesn't know what you know, one person who doesn't see what you see. And I want you to focus on them in this way. I want you, the very minimum, I want you to pray for them every single day. Put a reminder in your phone, put it somewhere that you'll see it on a regular basis. Somebody who doesn't know what you know and doesn't see what you see, I want you to pray for them every single day. And maybe there'll be opportunities for you to take a next step. Maybe there'll be an opportunity for you to share something with them, share your story with them. Send them a note, write them a letter. These things actually work. (laughs) There are people that we have literally prayed into the kingdom of God. I'm convinced. We just kept praying, kept praying, kept sending letters, kept, kept doing what we could do, what they were receptive to. And you get to see the fruit of that when they turn and are healed. So pray for them every day. Send them notes. Do them favors. Serve them in some way. Encourage them in some way. Invite them to church or to your Christmas Eve service here or to your home. Love them. Love them. And help them to see the authenticity of that love. As our worship team makes their way up here. I want to encourage you, we haven't talked about this for a while, but we have these altar benches down here. And maybe today is the day that you want to come forward to an altar bench. If you come to the middle benches, we'll just assume you want to pray alone. But maybe there's somebody you want to come forward and you want to intercede for them. You want to lift their name up to the Father right now and you want to do that in this moment. Come down to the middle benches. If you want somebody to come and pray with you or pray for you and put a hand on your shoulder... Just go to one of these outside two benches and somebody will come and pray and intercede. You could go over to the cross. There are slips of paper. You could write their name on a slip of paper as a a moment where you're interceding for them and doing something tangible. But however you choose to respond, my hope and my prayer is that you'll take the next step and that you'll focus on one person this year to help them see what you see and know what you know. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we are thankful for the good news that you are with us, that you came to us, that you love us more than we can imagine, that you died for us even when we were yet sinners, even when we were confused or indifferent or committed to not allowing your love to break through into our hearts. 
We pray, Lord, that as we respond, we would respond in faith, that we would seek your inspiration in one or two or more people to specifically pray for, to focus upon, to love and to serve and to invite and to share our lives with. And may the kingdom expand, Lord, as we seek to see and to know and to worship you in spirit and truth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.